Thank you, Alessi. Good morning, Arcadia. Let us get right to the matter at hand, which would be Romans. We are continuing our verse-by-verse walk through the book of Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and we are going to look at the very last paragraph of Romans chapter 1. And this last paragraph wraps up the part of Romans, verses 18 through 32, that has been described as the most dreadful but accurate portrayal of humanity or the human condition ever recorded in all of literature. And and Paul writes these verses. Again, we're looking specifically today at at 28 through 32, but we're going to keep it in context of 18 through 32 uh, because there's an argument there that Paul is making this downward spiral of sin into utter depravity. And Paul writes these verses not to damage our self-esteem. That's not why he's doing it. He's not, he's not writing them uh, so that we just feel bad and then that's the end of the discussion. But rather, he writes these verses in order to help us understand our desperate and essential need for Jesus Christ. He starts this section before verse 18, he starts it again with verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who believes. So he, he, he always keeps in front of us the idea that the gospel is the answer to whatever condition and issue we have as a result of original sin. But he also wants to help us understand how desperately we need that gospel, and that's why he writes it. And these five verses that we look at today... I mean, I'm telling you, people have been saying, wow, um, the last couple of weeks have been really challenging and really tough. Well, let me tell you something. This is probably the most challenging of all of the messages that we will have in Romans. It wasn't the last two weeks. It's going to be today. These five verses uh, have been called by some authors as the crystal picture of total human depravity. And the list of 21 sins or vices that we're going to kind of go through today thoroughly, completely, and with laser precision unmasks who each of us is, who we are at our core. And it's not very pleasant, but just remember, keep in mind that the answer to all of this is the gospel. I will keep coming back to that and coming back to that. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to kind of unpack the, the, the paragraph, 
We'll start again in verse 18 and kind of just give us the context. But then after we unpack the, the passage, we'll look at some of the application and consequences to our lives of what Paul says in this paragraph. So Romans chapter 1, I'm going to start at verse 18 and just give us a little review until we get to 28. Uh, the reason for this downward spiral into sin and depravity starts in verse 18 where Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. We suppress the truth of God. Even though God has clearly made it plain to us that He exists, that He is real, that He is the Creator, in our fallen nature, in our depravity, we have chosen to suppress the truth. And that that Greek word for suppress literally means to bind up. And so, again, as Sean said a few weeks ago, he said, we hogtie the truth, we set it aside, and then we assume that we are free to go about living our lives without God interfering. And we think that's the freedom that we desperately want in our lives. We want to be free of the requirements, uh, of, the, of the meddling of God in our lives, that that is what would give us uh, absolute and total freedom. But what Paul tries to explain to us in this, in this section is that that's not true. You will, you will descend into depravity in such a way that eventually you will become miserable. That in your sin, which is fun for a while, you will, you will eventually get to a point where you're, you're saying, how did I get here? How did I get into this situation? Remember, sin is always fun for a season. It, it is. I mean, let's just, let's just be honest. I, my friend Tom says this all the time. He says, listen, if, if you're not having fun when you sin, then you're not doing it correctly. But the problem is, the problem is, is that it's only going to last for a season because then it starts to destroy and eat away at your life. You're alienated from God. You're alienated from yourself. It'll also alienate you from others and it'll alienate you from creation. So that's the problem. So we suppress the truth. And as a result... <clears throat> Paul says three different times God gives us up, okay? So in verse 24, for instance, therefore God gave them up, gave us up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So, so the first thing uh, that happens when God gives us up is that he gives us up to the lusts of our hearts for impurity and what happens is we begin to disorder the proper order of worship. Instead of worshiping God, we are now worshiping ourselves. We're worshiping the created being rather than the creator and that causes all kinds of problems. And then the two verses that we looked at the last two weeks, 26 and 27, here's the second time Paul says, for this reason God gave them up. This time it is to dishonorable passions. And, and we unpacked all of the various ways, including homosexuality, that, that uh, we have disordered our sexual lives because we've asked God to leave our lives and he's obliged us. He's given, he's given us up. He's just giving us what we ask for. And then verse 28, the third time where Paul says this, and this is the worst. Believe it or not, this is the worst. There's this downward spiral throughout this passage and now this is the worst. So verse 28 says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, since they refused, since you and I refuse to hold God in his rightful place as God, we refuse to acknowledge him. Rather, we are acknowledging ourselves as God, ourselves on the throne. For this reason, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, what's a debased mind? We're going to look at that very closely in a few minutes but it can't be good. 
And so he says to do what ought not to be done. And then he provides us with a list of 21 different sins or vices and then wraps it up with the worst part, which is actually verse 32. So here are these 21 sins and vices. He says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then verse 32, the absolute depth of our depravity. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. In other words, they deserve spiritual death. They deserve to be separated from God for eternity. That's what they deserve. Though they know this, they suppress the truth and they not only do these things, but give approval to those who practice them. So they not only, do, not only do we sin, but we also cheer others as they sin and we ask others to cheer us as we sin. So Paul concludes this long, very devastating section with this idea that since we humans in our sinful state do not acknowledge God as God, we don't worship God as God, we have chosen to go, go our own way, he gives us up for the third time. And again, this word gives us up, it's, it's the word paradokon which literally means that he removes his caring, loving, guiding hand from us and from our lives. And he does this because we have asked him to do that. We have rebelled against him. We've done this and we've said, we don't want you. We don't want your input. You're just meddling. It's hard. It's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable when you give us your truth. And so we suppress the truth and we ask him to take a hike. And so he says, okay. You want to do this without my grace, love, and mercy? You can do it. It's not going to end well. You don't realize that, but, it's, but that's what we're going to go ahead and let you do. So he gives us up. Um, you don't need to turn there, but I, I've been waiting to use this because I wanted to use this at the end of chapter 1 because I think this is a wonderful picture and a great parallel to, to a passage that many of us know very well in Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. But listen to Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 in light of what we know Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. So the writer of Proverbs 3, probably Solomon, says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In other words, don't suppress the truth, don't hogtie the truth and set it aside. Don't exchange God's wisdom for your foolishness, but rather trust in the Lord. And then verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And now this is interesting because Paul uses this language in chapter, in chapter 1. He says in verse 28, he says, because we did not see fit to acknowledge God as God, here the proverb says, in all your ways you are to acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. And the reason that's important is because if God has given us the gift of paradokin, if he has taken away his guiding, loving hands, he can't make our paths straight. So we acknowledge God, he's going to make our paths straight. Verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. In other words, do not do what Paul says in Romans 1 and exchange God's wisdom for your foolishness. Don't exchange the truth of God for your lies. And then verse 8, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones if you live with God, if you allow him to be a part of uh, your life. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce writes that when we try to understand the world without God, when we try to understand 
what is created without the creator, we are trying to understand the whole without its most significant part. And that is just foolishness. We're trying to understand creation without the one who created it. And we do that in our own wisdom, thinking that we can handle it, but it ends up being just total foolishness. And again, this is the third time Paul has said this. And each time there's a downward progression of the sin and depravity that we engage in. And this paragraph we look at today is the worst. And, and, and we're going to talk more about this later, but what this paragraph reminds us of is this very simple principle that you, you need to just understand. And that is that sin is progressive and predatory. Sin is always progressive and predatory. Once we get started with sin, rebellion, depravity, once we go down that path, we are doomed to a life of treachery. We are doomed to a life of worshiping idols that we have created rather than God. We're doomed to a life of pride and arrogance. We are doomed to a life of making excuses and blaming others. We are doomed to a life that is owned by something other than the love, mercy, and, and grace of God. And we are doomed to a life that, that, as verse 32 says, desperately seeks the approval of others when we sin. In other words, uh, for a while, it is enough that we just sin in a hidden way, in our own darkness. But eventually, that's not going to be enough for us. The progression of sin eventually makes it so what we want to do is we want to come out in the open with it and we want people to affirm us and advocate for us and cheer for us once it is out in the open and we will do the same for them. And that's when we've hit absolute rock bottom. David Augsburger says this, once sin gets started, it becomes a negative downward spiral that it is impossible for us to pull out of under our own power. So verse 24, we're given up to the lusts of our hearts for impurity. In verse 26, God gives us up for dishonorable passions. And then in verse 28, Paul says our minds go. We are given up to a debased mind. Literally in the Greek, a debased mind is one that willingly submits to our own counterfeit reasoning. A debased mind is one that willingly submits to our own counterfeit reasoning. Now, this is interesting to me. Uh, I've never known anybody who bought a product that was represented as a particular brand or a particular quality, and when they got the product home and began to use the product, they were excited to find out that the product was a counterfeit, that it was a fraud of some sort. What happens then is people get very angry and, and they write letters and they go to the consumer products and they do all the Better Business Bureau and all this. They get very angry. We do not like to be counterfeited. We don't like to be uh, victims of fraud. But we do this all the time with our own minds. We do. We love to fool ourselves. We are into self-deception. Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 6. He says, do not deceive yourselves. God cannot be mocked. And the reason he teaches this is because we are constantly deceiving ourselves into this idea that we can mock God and get away with it. He says, no, 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 no. Don't deceive yourselves. God cannot be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Pa Paul is saying essentially the same thing in, in, in a much more expanded way here in chapter 1. 
We routinely practice self-deception. We, we love to rationalize our irrational behavior. More to the point, we love to rationalize our sin. We're okay with our minds being compromised by the enemy. We actually prefer to be, to be deceived about the reality of, of godly truth and wisdom. We prefer to hogtie it and set it aside. But boy, oh boy, we get deceived by counterfeiters with a product. Katie, bar the door, we are angry. It's one of the great ironies of life, if you think about it. And why are we so okay with counterfeit reasoning? Why are we okay with that? Why do we fall victim to that so willingly? Well, for one reason, it's what our culture prefers. Our culture doesn't want to deal with the fact that we have issues and we are depraved and there is sin out there and it's a problem. We also, we don't like tension. We Americans, we don't like tension. And so if we, if we give ourselves to this counterfeit reasoning, it eliminates tension in our lives because then we don't have to talk about any of this awful depraved behavior. In fact, what we do is we create new narratives in order to be able to either deny it or incorporate it into our regular life. It is cognitive dissonance run amok. It is classic cognitive dissonance. And we hate the tension that any of this creates. I've said this before. Uh, America is a low ambiguity tolerant culture. We hate anything that creates any tension or uncertainty or ambiguity. And we will do anything, including fooling ourselves, in order to to get it out of our way. Another reason we do it is it's a way to keep God off his throne and leave us on the throne because we like it on the throne. And then from here, it's just a landslide of depravity. This debased mind, our reprobate mind, practices not only the disorders that we read about in verses 18 through 27, but also the 21, and actually if you include verse 32, the 22 disorders that he talks about in verses 29 through 32. Paul lists 21 sins or vices in verses 29 through 31. This was very common for first century writing of the, Paul that, of the kind that Paul was doing to have a vice list or a, or a sin list. These are things that ought not to be done. Now, I know that the vast majority of you woke up this morning, especially on Mother's Day. This would be a good Mother's Day thing. You woke up this morning and you started praying that you would come to church and your pastor would spend hours and hours and hours doing word studies on 21 Greek words sin for sin, right? That's, you were excited about that, right? Well, that's not going to happen. We're not going to do that. I'm going to look at a few just to give you a taste but ultimately, we'll see at the end when we do the application how they all fit together. I want to look at just four, just to be able to give you a little bit of a taste. And by the way, they're probably, I got this response from the, first, uh, from the first service. They're probably not the four that you would expect us to pick. But they're interesting nonetheless. And, and I pick them because it does help us to understand just how depraved we really are. Okay, so here's the first one. It's gossip. Gossip does not get the credit and the acclaim that it deserves as one of the most sinister sins. And here is why gossip is so desperately wicked. Mostly, gossip is opinion and preference, but it is presented as fact. Gossip is opinion and preference, but it is presented as fact. Also, studies have shown repeatedly that the motivating factors behind why people like to gossip betrays the fact that our hearts are desperately wicked, those of us that gossip. So here are some reasons why we gossip, and we fully admit to this. Uh, we gossip in order to elevate ourselves at other people's expense. 
And this would be narcissism and selfishness on steroids when we do that. People gossip as a strategy in order to manipulate situations to their advantage, especially when they know that they cannot get what they want through regular and honorable channels. Well, I tried to do it this way, and I wasn't able to get what I want, so I'm going to go ahead and do it this way, and I'm going to destroy some people along the way. And we're willing to do that. Here you go. People gossip because it's a form of entertainment. People readily admit, I gossip because it's fun. It's fun to get together with people and, and trade juicy little tidbits. And then you get into something called the reciprocity effect where if I say something about Joe, then you go, oh yeah? You, you, uh, well, guess what else? And then you tell me something else about Joe that I've never heard before and now i got more gossip. And we just keep going at it. And then finally, people gossip because they just want to destroy somebody. They don't like them very much and so, well, here's, here's one way that I can take care of that. The Greek word that we translate as gossip literally means secret slanderers. See, we prefer the word gossip, don't we? I'm just gossiping a little. Ah, you're a secret slanderer. That's what you are. And pride is always at the root. And I'll tell you, it's one of the, gossip is one of the most devastating sins that can happen in a church community. You take a per perfectly healthy church community and you get that ball of gossip rolling and watch out. It's very destructive. So, are you a secret slanderer? Just something that you don't have to raise your hand, just something to kind of think about. Okay. Here, here you go. The, the word boastful is also interesting. Boastful. Uh, you know how some people will do trash, you know, the old trash talk. You know how some people will talk trash, but they can back it up? Michael Jordan used to talk some trash, but he's got six, six rings. So he could back it. Some of you are like, who's Michael Jordan? Isn't he that underwear guy? All right, LeBron James. He's only got one ring yet, but he can, he can back it up, right? He can back it up. Okay? It's the old saying, I don't mind if she's arrogant as long as she can back it up. And that's no, I'm not I'm making an excuse for boasting. I'm not saying it's okay to boast if you can back it up. Even if you're as good as you say you are, the, the gospel approach to life is always through humility and not through pride. But, the word translated as boastful in this passage is somebody who boasts about something that they're not even able to do. They can't even do what they're boasting about. So they're, they're a poser. That's all they are. So, so not only are they filled with pride, but they're not anywhere near as wonderful as they think they are or as they say they are. How about this term inventor of evil? There's not enough evil in the world that we're... We have to go out and invent our own as well? Yeah. Yeah, we do. A couple things about this term. I, I, I run into a lot of people who like to talk to me about how they aren't very creative, probably because I'm not a very creative. I don't see myself as a very creative person either. I'm, I'm not, I don't understand art that well. I, I I, I, I struggle with stick figures even. I'm just, I'm, and I understand that. You know, I, I, I can't look, people like, that, we can't look at things and somehow see the potential, you know? Not good at that, not creative. If, if I were a color, I would be beige, that kind of a person, you know? So we complain that we aren't creative. Guess what, though? When it comes to sin, we are all suddenly very creative. 
we're really good at rationalizing sin, coming up with new ways. It's just part of that downward spiral of depravity. Check this out. Our, uh, the, the founding pastor of East Valley Bible Church, which is now the Gilbert Congregation of Redemption Church, so that would be Tom Schrader. Some of you, some of you know him. He is as unimaginative and uncreative as anybody I have ever met. Some people would even say he is dull. Other people would say that. I wouldn't, but some people have said he is extraordinarily dull. But before he was a Christian, he became a Christian when he was 30 years old. He worked in a big office with a bunch of guys in that office. And all the guys in that office had a nickname for him. His nickname was Baskin Robbins. Here's why. Whatever debauchery these guys were planning to practice and partake in, they knew that they could take it to Tom, and Tom could come up with 31 new and different ways to practice that debauchery. 31 new flavors of sin. And so they started calling him Baskin Robbins. And in 1980, when, when the gospel got a hold of Tom's life and he became a Christian, these guys were so desperately disappointed. They needed a new 31 flavors guy. Probably didn't have to look very far because we're all creative when it comes to that. Last one, that word insolent, insolent, insolent. It's like we've, we've all heard that word, but we're probably not sure what it means. Kind of sounds like an antiseptic or something, but it's not. Here's, here's the academic definition of the word insolent. It's one who behaves with humiliating and unconscionable arrogance to those who lack any power to stand their ground. It's one who behaves with humiliating and unconscionable arrogance to those who have, who have no power whatsoever to stand their ground. Evilness and wickedness is bad enough when practiced against those who can fight back. But to look for and oppress those who can't even fend for themselves, once again, that's that downward spiral of depravity and sin that is caused by a debased mind, by a mind that is into counterfeit reasoning and will rationalize anything. And this downward spiraling then leads to what Kent Hughes calls the lowest point in humanity's disorder and corruption. And that would be verse 32. We heartily engage and applaud others who give themselves to sin and we ourselves have a desperate need to be affirmed in our sin. So we become the mutual admiration society when it comes to sin. Public sphere sin. We, we, we not just... We don't just look the other way when it happens. We actively advocate for sin in the public sphere. And listen, Satan knows that if he can get us to encourage things in other people that we might not think that we would ever do, he knows that that's just the first step towards desensitizing us and eventually having us fall to those very same sins. And then anything goes. And I know, what, I know some of you might hear this and you, uh, you'll say with some measure of scorn and, 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 and condescension, you, you might say, oh, that's the slippery slope argument. Well, yeah. Sin is slippery. Go ahead and call it the slippery slope argument. That's fine. The slope is slippery when it comes to sin. It's oily, it's greasy, and there's no way to get up once you start down that path. And that leads us perfectly into a couple of points of application. Here's the first one. Flirting with sin is a bad idea that always ends in disaster. 
Flirting with sin is a bad idea that always ends in disaster. Why is it that you and I can't sin just a wee little bit? Why can't we do that? Why is it that we can't seem to hang out with sin, just sort of, sort of on the margins, you know? Maybe we get a whiff of it, we see it happening. We're trying not to get any honest. We, we, we hang out in the margins of sin. Why is it we can't do that without eventually falling to that sin? Without eventually getting sucked in? Why can't we just tease sin and let te- sin tease us? Why does it always go further than that? The reason is because sin is predatory. Sin is predatory. Sin always takes the little thrill that you get from the little sin... And then in the wake of that, it promises a bigger thrill from the bigger sin, and we buy into that bigger thrill because we always want a bigger thrill. That's just the way we've been wired since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. No, no one I know, no one I know starts out saying, I'm going to become a child pornographer. It always starts with the simplest of lusts. No one I know starts out thinking that they're going to go to jail for embezzlement or fraud. It always starts with a minor fiscal infraction that goes unnoticed and they think they can do it again and they can do it bigger. And eventually they do it so big that it can't help but be caught. That's the story of Enron, by the way. No one has ever confessed to me that they were looking to commit adultery. No one. No one has ever said, I I was looking to do this. It always starts with a little flirting, with a little emotional connection, with a private lunch that lasts a little bit too long or maybe lingering around somebody's workstation for something other than work. Sin, sin never stops at just one. And once you're hooked, it'll reel you in. Every person I've ever talked to who is in deep, deep, serious trouble says exactly the same way, same thing. It didn't start this way. It didn't start this way. And the evil one knows this. This is why Satan hardly ever tempts us with big sin. He doesn't just come right up to us boldly and say, hey, why don't you do this big thing? He doesn't do that. Instead, he comes and he whispers to us. He whispers to us about a minor infraction, a little peccadillo, something that we feel like we can get away with. And he knows that if he can get us started on that road, that we'll take it from there. We're very good about that. There was a a study done about 10 years ago It unpacked the narratives of a bunch of people who were in deep, deep darkness in their lives. And they actually found a pattern to this darkness. They found that there are four phases or steps that you and I all go through when heading into darkness. And the first step or the first phase is that first moment that we've been made aware of the possibility to compromise something. The first moment that we've been made aware uh, of the idea of committing a sin. The first moment that it's placed uh, in our area of consciousness. And it happens very briefly, but that's the first step. The second step is we take that first little moment of contact and we begin to think about it. We begin to contemplate it. We ruminate on it. We ponder it for a while. And then step three is kind of like we decide we're going to stick our toe in the water. And we think, you know what, I'm, I'm... I'm going to try this just once. I'm going to do this just once. I'm going to forge this little expense here. 
I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal a little kiss here. I'm going I'm I'm, I'm to accidentally go to this website here just once. I'm just going to do it once. That's step three. And then step four, we become repeat offenders. And every time we offend, we just go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper because we think we're getting away with it and we need the bigger thrill that's going to come with the bigger sin. And here's what's interesting. The people that conducted the study uh, determined that the pattern was true for everybody, that if they didn't stop at step one, they would end up at step four. And every person thought that they could dabble with steps two and three and never go to four. And so the researchers said, listen, the key is to stop at step one. For those of us who know Christ, the key is to stop at step one and take every thought captive to Jesus Christ, as Paul says. That's what we're supposed to do. The minute we think, oh, I can get away with it, it'll just be fun to think about it for a while. The minute we think we can do that without going to step three and step four, we are into our own counterfeit reasoning. We are deceiving ourselves. And then we go to step three. And then the next thing you know, we're, we're, we're in somebody's office going, it didn't start this way. That's how it works. And, and that's how Satan deals with us. He just gets us started. And the reason he can do this is because he knows that sin is predatory and sin is progressive. And, and by the way, there's, there's a lot of ways you could apply this, but let me just apply it this one way. I want you to consider something. Uh, most of us have one of these things, a smartphone, okay? A droid, an iPhone, whatever it is. You got it in your pocket, you got it in your purse, whatever, whatever. And most of us would say, we can't survive without this piece of equipment, right? If somebody were to say to you, you have to lose that phone, we would, we would scream bloody murder. But what you need to understand is that every smartphone is now a portable, convenient, easy-to-hide, traveling, strip joint, casino, and video recorder. And we hold this phone in our hands, and the challenge, especially with a debased mind, is to not contemplate all the things that we can do with this. Progress is wonderful. I love progress. But with debased minds, progress always comes with a cost. It's just one example. So, that's the first thing. You can't flirt with sin. Here's the second thing. Rebellion against God always goes downhill. Rebellion against God always goes downhill. We can never bail ourselves out once we head down that road of rebellion. Now, last summer, we looked at the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, and the first four chapters were all about Daniel's relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar, who was not a believer in the one true God until the end of chapter four, I would argue. But it was interesting uh, to watch King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, depravity. He had this slow downward uh, downward slope into depravity through the first four chapters of Daniel. And it was interesting because it, chapter 4, at the height of Nebuchadnezzar's popularity, power, and success, God decides that he's going to give Nebuchadnezzar one last chance to acknowledge him as God. And so God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream, a terrifying dream, and no one can interpret it. He goes to his guys and he says, hey, here's this dream, interpret it. And they say, we don't get it, we don't understand it. And so then they said, where's Daniel? 
He'll be able to figure it out. So they call Daniel. Daniel comes in. This is kind of the pattern of the, of, of the book of Daniel. Daniel comes in, and Nebuchadnezzar tells him the dream. And do you remember, remember Daniel's reaction to the dream before he interpreted it? He knew the interpretation. He was terrified. He was horrified because he knew that the interpretation of the dream was that God was going to let go of Nebuchadnezzar, that he was going to give him up if, he didn't, if Nebuchadnezzar didn't acknowledge him. By the way, I want you to think, a little side note, think about this. Nebuchadnezzar was not a believer. Daniel was a believer. Yet Daniel loved and served Nebuchadnezzar to the point where he was terrified for Nebuchadnezzar when he knew that God was getting ready to deal with him. That's the way we're supposed to be in the church too. It's not just about us who believe. It is about those out there who don't believe and we are to love them and to serve them. Anyway, another sermon for another Sunday. Here's what happens. Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he begs him. He pleads with him. He says, please acknowledge God or you're asking for trouble. This is not going to end well. This, of course, was preposterous to Nebuchadnezzar because his power, his wealth, and his success had never been greater and nothing bad had happened to him yet. In fact, it was just getting better and better and better. So he says, forget it. And then God lets Nebuchadnezzar know, go for a whole nother year. God's not very patient. Yes, he is. He let him go for a whole nother year. God is patient. Not infinitely patient, but he is patient. But then finally, one night, the weather was nice. Nebuchadnezzar's out on his balcony, on his roof, overlooking all of Babylon, the splendor and glory of Babylon. And he begins to sing that famous hymn, How Great I Art. And he begins to say out loud, look at this magnificent Babylon that I have built by my power, my might, my wisdom, my intelligence, and for my glory. And while the words were still on his lips, God says, okay, pal, you want to know what it's like without my grace in your life? You're going to find out. And God paradokened him. He said, you're going to find out what life without me is really like. And Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful, most sophisticated, most majestic man in the whole world was relegated for seven years to scratching around in the backyard, eating grass, and sleeping in the rain. Kind of a humiliating experience for him. In the end, he finally did acknowledge God as the Most High. But Nebuchadnezzar's downhill track is quite similar to what Paul talks about in, in these verses, 29 through 31, it's the result of the decay of our personal and our corporate life through this continuous downhill cycle of rebellion against God. And because wicked behavior always deteriorates, it leads to the breakdown of the five major areas of our life. And, and the sins in this area represent those five major areas. It, it, it results in the breakdown of the social order, the relational order, our character, the order of our character, the breakdown of our families, and the breakdown of the economy. And you see it. There's economic disorder in the greed. There's social disorder in murder, strife, deceit, malice. There's the breakdown and disorder of the family by those who, who do not obey their parents. There's relationship breakdown with gossipers, slanderers, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. And then there's the breakdown of our character, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
This is going to be very challenging for some of us to hear, but I think it's a solid example of this downward principle. Our nation has been having a lengthy debate about abortion for quite some time now. It actually started in the, in the late 1950s, really. And then finally in 1973, through the case of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court gave us, as a nation, gave us the right to have abortions. I would just say, the way Scripture sees it, it gave us the right to murder children. But the debate didn't end there. A lot of people were hoping the debate would be ended with the Supreme Court decision. That's it. We have the right now. It didn't, depend, it didn't end there. Both sides continued to argue even though it was legalized. And then in the midst of, this, of the argument came, came, came a lot of things, but came this one little thing that I think is interesting. In the Newsweek magazine, September 6, 1982 issue, there was a headline that reads, Biologists say infanticide is as normal as the sex drive and that most animals, including man, practice it. Infanticide, biologists, ooh, biologists, okay. Biologists say that infanticide is as normal as the sex drive and that most humans, including man, practice it. And next to it was a picture of a mother baboon killing her baby. And the implication, of course, is, is that if baboons are killing their children, why shouldn't we? It's just a biological function. It's the old biology argument for behavior. I can't control my biology, therefore I, I, I'm not going to be held responsible for my behavior. Here's what one commentator said in response. Since when did animals become the standard for human behavior? Listen, I'm not a dog, and neither are you, and I don't expect that we're going to act like dogs, okay? Now, many of us have been following the Gosnell proceedings, right? You all know that name? If you don't, if you're not familiar with Gosnell, you should be. Kermit Gosnell runs a clinic in Philadelphia that does many late-term and what many people would call full-term abortions. And many of these babies have come through the procedure alive outside of the womb, which is a problem for a clinic like this. And as fully developed infants, Gosnell and others allegedly killed these babies outside of the womb by snipping their necks with surgical scissors. Now let me ask a really hard question. When the Supreme Court decided in 1973 to legalize abortion, do you think anyone had in mind that this Gosnell thing would be what results? And by the way, if you think that Gosnell is the only place where this is happening, it's not. It's happening everywhere. Okay? It's happening right here in Phoenix. Yeah. Do you think anybody sat there and said, well, this is what's going to happen. We're, we're going to end up killing um, Infant, fully viable infant. That's what, what's going to happen. No, if you had said that, they would have looked at you like you were crazy. They would have looked at you and said, you're some kind of a religious nut. You're being irrational. Nobody will ever do that. But sin is predatory and sin is progressive. That's where it would end up. It always goes downhill. And, and, and when we refuse to listen to God on this, when we mock what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, we head merrily and miserably down that road. In 1973, we as a nation, in our wisdom, we told God that we didn't need his help on the abortion issue. We suppressed his truth, and in the name of civil rights, civil rights for the mother but not for the unborn child, we decided that we were going to have abortion. And today we are reaping what was sown 40 years ago. So let me ask this question. This is an even harder question. 
What decisions are you participating in today that you're all fired up about today that, will may, that maybe will have disastrous consequences some year, years down the road because you decided to listen to your wisdom and not God's wisdom on this? Now that's rough stuff, I know. But it's because I care about this stuff and I think we as a church should care about this stuff as well. And I want you to hear me on this. The answer, the answer to this troubling problem of Romans chapter 1, which we culminate today, the answer is not a stirring sermon from your pastor. It's, it's not for you to try harder. It's not for you to resolve to be a better person. It's not for you to engage in some sort of mild moral reform. The answer is the exact same answer we've been giving you every single week. It is verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation. It is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes. The resurrected Christ is the only one who can remove this veil, this blindness from our eyes and from the hardness of our hearts and turn our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Please go there with me on this one. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Paul presents the gospel throughout all of his letters, throughout virtually every chapter of every letter, but here's just another one. He writes this starting in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, the hope of the resurrected Christ... Since we have this hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. They became debased. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is the veil taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I see a tremendous irony today. I look at Romans chapter 1 and I see a letter that was written 2,000 years ago and I see tremendous relevance to everything that's going on in our world and in our lives today. I also look at the way Luke records in his gospel the crucifixion of Jesus and I see the same thing at the foot of the cross happening today as we come metaphorically to the foot of the cross of Jesus today and we are faced with a decision about who Jesus really is. At the foot of the cross, there were people who were mocking Jesus, who were making fun of him. And there were those who were advocating on behalf of them. They were saying, yeah, go get him, make fun of him. This is really fun. This is a great show. But there were also others who recognized that in the wake of the cross, at the foot of the cross, they were being called to a decision. And there were those who looked at the cross and they said, holy cow, don't mock him. He really is the son of God. That's the Roman centurion. He did not join in the advocacy of the sin of others, but rather he looked at Jesus and he said, He's the Son of God. He's the Savior and Lord. 
And though Jesus did not call for a decision verbally from the cross, he nevertheless called for a decision because of what had happened to him and eventually, three days later, the fact that he was raised from the dead. He calls for a decision from us. He calls for us to decide for the gospel or against him and suppress his truth. And so I would just say, if you're here today, you don't know Jesus, you are being called to a decision, not by me, but by the resurrected Christ, who at the foot of the cross bore the sins, those 21 sins that we talked about today. He bore every one of those sins and all the other ones on his back at the cross. And it is in him that you can find the power to live the sanctified life. And that's what we would pray for you. Let me pray. Sean will come up and lead us into our time of reflection. God, this is tough stuff today. This is very challenging. And I recognize that. But the reason we can, we can challenge and be challenged by it is because you have risen above it through your Son and His resurrection. And it's in His name that we pray these things. Amen.